Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to discuss the greatest threat to Abbasid legitimacy during al-Mansur's reign. It will ultimately end up as a surprisingly benign challenge, almost anticlimactic really, but that too will prove to be misleading, as its aftermath will be deeply consequential. While others may disagree, in my eyes, these events represent the beginnings of the Shia, not yet as a separate sectarian community, but the birth of their eventual identity. Episode 45, Hashemite vs. Hashemite Now that we've covered it in some detail, I'm sure you will agree that the switch from Umayyad to Abbasid was more than a simple change in leadership. What I mean is while there were surely many differences between the dynasties which had ruled the Roman Empire, I'm not sure anyone would seriously argue that each represented the beginning of a new political project. After all, reality didn't reset with each dynasty, and the new emperor still ruled the old empire faced by the same problems as his predecessor. Such was not the case with the Arabs. The two caliphates had deep, essential differences. And instead of regarding the Abbasid revolution as a successful coup, which is how most Roman dynasties got their start, it is perhaps more useful to think of the Umayyad caliphate having been overthrown and replaced by a whole new state. In its struggle against the Umayyads, the revolution rewrote many of the rules underpinning the caliphate. In order to garner as much support as possible, the Abbasid da'wah, its secret calling before bursting out in armed rebellion, had exploited all the Ummah's major fault lines. There are three worth highlighting, though the third is kind of a two-parter. The first thing the Ummah was divided over was whether the Mawadi, non-Arab Muslims, counted as equals to the Arabs themselves. With the exception of the religiously inclined Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, all the Umayyad caliphs answered that question with an emphatic no. While their commanders did impose some troop levies in the east and enlisted the help of the Berbers in the west, the caliphate's armies were otherwise entirely Arab. Non-Arabs who had converted were allowed to live in Muslim cities, but they were still subject to a poll tax something which rankled the Muslims who considered man's equality before God to be one of the religion's main tenets. This didn't matter much to the Umayyads, however. As far as they were concerned, they were Arab nobility, ruling an Arab caliphate. The second fault line was the tribal feud, to which we have already dedicated an inordinate amount of time and attention. Since the Arab tribes were the caliph's armies, their jostling for influence within the caliphate had an outsized impact on the Ummah's power and ultimately its effectiveness on the battlefield. The best Umayyad caliphs managed to control this conflict to their advantage, outlining opportunities for each side to earn their favor by fighting for the glory of the caliphate. The worst ones did the opposite. By picking sides, they pretty much used the part of the army they liked to destroy the one they didn't, practically cannibalizing their own power. While the Abbasids did sort of back the Qahtanis at the beginning of their rebellion, 
they were quick to include any tribes willing to join them, and so their favoritism wasn't sustained enough for them to be considered partisan. They didn't need to be either. The main way this fault line played into their hands was through its weakening of the Syrian armies loyal to the Umayyads. Before we cover the third fault line, the true focus of this episode, let's recount how the Abbasid revolution took advantage of these divisions I just mentioned when it rose up against the Umayyads. The Dawah first succeeded in the east, where the question of Arab-non-Arab equity was a major issue. It had been the main driver of Harith's pro-Mawali rebellion, which lasted for a very long time, and had even played a role in bringing down the last Umayyad governor of Khurasan, Nasr ibn Sayyar. Allow me a short tangent to write something that's been bugging me. I failed to mention this in the episode we had on Nasr, but soon after taking power, he prohibited the taxation of non-Arab Muslims, which was a huge part of why he was so popular in the East. His reforms were straightforward and simple. Muslims no longer paid a poll tax regardless of their ethnicity, but everyone now had to pay a land tax. This fulfilled the Mawadi's aspirations of being regarded as equals within the Ummah, and it didn't inconvenience the Arabs at all, because so few of them owned land anyway. He thus satisfied both parties with the added bonus of not diluting his tax base, a solution so elegant and obvious that it left me wondering why none of his predecessors had stumbled upon it. But let's return to the Abbasid revolution and its exploitation of the Ummah's divisions. Having been midwifed by Abu Muslim al-Khurasani, the Da'wah was clearly on the side of ethnic equality, something which gave it an overwhelming appeal in the East. In relying on the support of the Mawadi, Abu Muslim created the forces that would come to be referred to as the Khurasaniyya, non-Arab soldiers loyal to the revolutionary movement. They bested the tribally divided armies that had been levied against them by the Umayyads, first by Kufa, and then at the fateful battle by the river Zab. The success of the Khurasaniyya meant that the Arabs no longer held a monopoly on military might, and the caliph didn't need to keep their tribal elders happy any longer. This was the transformation which had truly extinguished the tribal feud. The whole thing was just coalitions of tribes trying to make sure they were more influential within the caliphate than their rivals. Now that the caliph had other options, nobody was indispensable, and any tribe that stepped out of line or tried to start something got what was coming to it. So the Umayyads had run an Arab caliphate, while the Abbasids intended to rule a Muslim one, without relying on any single ethnicity. This in a sense socially demoted the Arabs and relegated the importance of their internal dynamics, the tribal rift. See how changed the Ummah was already? And we haven't even gotten to the third fault line, the one I said would be a two-parter. Pay attention now, because our episode is going to get started any minute. Ever since before the dynastic age, and starting with Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, the Umayyads had relied on the Syrian tribes to do their bidding on the battlefield. During the first fitna, their forces kept Muawiyah in his position as governor and helped him become caliph after they faced off against their Iraqi opponents time and again. I'm taking us all the way back to the first fitna because it has the seeds of both parts of the third fault line I've been working us up to. One part was the Syrian versus Iraqi dynamic, and the other was the Umayyad versus Hashemite one. If you recall, 
Back then, the Iraqis were on the side of the Hashemite Ali bin Abi Talib, whom many saw as the legitimate heir to the Prophet's legacy. Unlike the other two divisions within the Ummah, which led to sporadic uprisings whenever their tensions were inflamed, this fault line has lain dormant for the past few decades in our narrative. To publicly support the Hashemites in the Umayyad Caliphate was a crime, and the clan was literally cursed during all five prayers at every public mosque. The Iraqis continued to show resistance during the second fitna, and even into Abdul Malik's reign, but they were brutalized into submission by his governor at Hajjaj. They endured other terribly cruel overlords afterwards, though none end up as bloodstained in Arab history as at Hajjaj. He was also the one who built the fortified city of Al-Wasit between Basra and Kufa and filled it with a Syrian garrison. He and all the governors that succeeded him used it to subjugate and control the Iraqis, formalizing their subservience within the Ummah. This humiliation all ended with the Abbasid revolution. The Iraqis were eager champions of the movement after it reached them from Khurasan. The city of Kufa actually erupted in a pro-Abbasid Qahtani rebellion just before the Dawah won its battle against the city's last Umayyad governor. They quickly pledged to al-Saffah when he first emerged from hiding in Kufa, and many went on to join his uncle's armies to fight against the Umayyads at the Zab. The Abbasid caliphs recognized and rewarded this attitude by making their courts in Iraq, which kept them close to its people and helped them stay connected to the lands of the east, lands which had proven far more instrumental to the caliphate's power and fortunes than the Umayyads had understood. So broadly, and only kinda, the Umayyad caliphate was Arab and based in Syria, and the Abbasid caliphate was Muslim and based in Iraq. This leaves us with one final tension within the Ummah, the matter of Hashemite support, our true subject of interest for today. The Umayyads had persecuted anyone reckless enough to proclaim their support for the Hashemites, not to mention killing the sons of Ali bin Abi Talib between the first and second fitnas. The clan was savaged so thoroughly by them that its survivors turned entirely apolitical. Even staying away from endorsing any of the other uprisings against Umayyad rule. Some Hashemite supporters in Iraq and further east sometimes rebelled in their name, but no actual Hashemites were implicated in any of these uprisings. Not until the rebellion of Zayd ibn Ali late in Hisham's reign. Even then, Ja'far al-Sadiq, the clan's leader, refused to endorse his uncle's movement, adhering instead to the apolitical stance established by his predecessors. Ever since the rise of Islam, only those directly descended from the Prophet had become leaders of the Hashemite clan. After Ali bin Abi Talib came his two sons from the Prophet's daughter, first Al-Hasan, then Al-Husayn. After the tragic massacre of Al-Husayn at Karbala, he was succeeded by his only surviving son, Ali Zainul Abidin. Zainul Abidin was widely respected for his religious acumen, as was his son, Muhammad al-Baqir, then his son after him, Ja'far al-Sadiq. Each of these men was regarded as among the utmost religious scholars of his generation, and the last of the three, Ja'far, took things to another level altogether. Beyond simply learning, keeping, and transmitting religious knowledge, he developed entire frameworks for jurisprudence and the legal application of revelation. This kicked off a whole range of religious-slash-intellectual activity within the Ummah, 
the transcription and authentication of Sunnat Rasulullah, the sayings and deeds of the Prophet, became an immediate concern now that there was a way, nay, an obligation, to use this material to govern and adjudicate matters for a whole society. I won't pretend to be able to fully appreciate Jafar's contribution, but consider this. Not only are his religious opinions the bases for the entirety of Shia religious law, but also of the four schools of thought accepted as orthodox Sunni Islam, two were founded by direct students of his, and the other two by students of theirs. Even in the esteemed company of his ancestors, Jafar al-Sadiq towers as an intellectual giant. The children of Hussein's older brother, Al-Hasan, who could also claim descent from the Prophet, were similarly highly regarded within the tribe, and they too were known for their piety. If the Husseini branch was considered more religious, it wasn't because of some inherent superiority. But since the Hassanis had not endured a massacre, they were more numerous than their cousins, and so were into all sorts of things beyond religious education. There wasn't any hostility between the two branches or anything, but the way family dynamics worked in a tribal context meant that each would have its own elders, who would confer when it was time for the clan to come together for a decision. Consider this a very rough sketch of how decision-making happens in these contexts. Take it for what it's worth. So while both the Hassani and Husseini branches of the Hashemite clan were highly regarded for their descent from the Prophet, the Husseini branch was the more priestly of the two, and that's why I've been calling its elders the clan leaders. Really, though, I shouldn't use the term clan leader. It implies a kind of unity which is entirely absent from the Hashemites during the events we'll be discussing today. The Husseini branch of the clan, that is, Ali Zayn al-Abidin, Muhammad al-Baqir, then Jafar al-Sadiq, were respected for their religious and moral authority, but other parts of the clan sometimes struck out on their own, as Jafar's uncle Zayd had with his rebellion, or the Abbasids with their da'wah. See, that's another complicating factor for the Hashemite struggle at this point. In case anyone still needs to hear this, the Abbasids were Hashemites too. The Abbas they're named for was the Prophet's uncle. So if the new caliphs were all Hashemites, why was this Hashemite tension even still a thing? The reason goes back to the Da'wah's secrecy about the identity of those it championed and the perhaps deliberately deceitful vagueness of its call to return the Prophet's clan to power. Obviously, everyone assumed those with a direct line of descent from the Prophet were the intended but unnamed men the Dawah championed. While the Abbasids were technically Hashemites, that was the only sense in which they qualified for the label. They had not been early adopters of Islam, and so hadn't struggled with the Prophet along his journey. They had also been one of the Hashemite families closest to the Umayyads during their dynasty. On the other hand, although nobody considered the Abbasids true Hashemites, that hadn't stopped the people of Kufa from pledging to Al-Saffah. While we find a dubiously high number of speeches delivered by the Abbasids at the mosque that day, highlighting the purity of their ancestry and waxing poetic about how God had finally returned the Ummah to the Prophet's clan, we don't find any pushback against these claims in our sources coming from any of those in attendance. I guess it's hard to begrudge this, though. Nobody was going to reject al-Saffah after his Khurasani armies had defeated the hated Umayyad governor of Iraq and were gearing up to challenge the Umayyad caliph himself. We can still find some hints that things were touch-and-go for a while, 
like that strange story of other Hashemite elders being contacted by members of the Dawa to take the reins and lead the new caliphate. While I dismissed these accounts as official propaganda, meant to vindicate the Abbasid claim to Hashemite leadership, I may have been a little too hasty, because I can also see other reasonable explanations. The Abbasids must have known that the Dawah had some members who were actually loyal to the classical Hashemite idea, the one about championing the descendants of the Prophet. I say this because in our sources we find stories about the assassinations of senior figures within the Dawah, men like Abu Salma al-Khallal and Sulaiman bin Kathir, known for their loyalty to the Hashemite clan. Even more suspiciously, these deaths are consistently attributed to Abu Muslim, who was actually pretty well aligned with their views on these matters. It is more likely that the Abbasids themselves wanted to be rid of these inflexible supporters and blamed Abu Muslim to hide their two-timing ways. Before I wrap up our long introduction here and begin talking about what actually happened with Al-Mansur, let's recast the story of Abu Salman al-Khallal in this new light. It'll both convey my point and help us better frame the clan we're about to discuss. Abu Salma was one of these pro-Hashemite elements of the Dawah who we are told had written to other leaders of the clan, asking them to come be pledged to in Kufa. The first of the three was Ja'far al-Sadiq, descendant of al-Husayn ibn Ali, and clearly the most important Hashemite of the bunch. He refused to receive the letter addressed to him, and when pressed, burned it in a lantern without opening it. The second was Abdullah al-Kamil, prominent among the descendants of al-Hasan ibn Ali. His title, al-Kamil, translates as the complete, because both of his parents could claim descent from the Prophet. He sought Ja'far's counsel after reading the summons to Kufa, and was convinced by him that it was foolish to walk into somebody else's pre-made plans. The third and final letter, only to be delivered if the previous two had been refused, was sent to an uncle of Ja'far's, so we can only assume that something similar happened with him. Clearly, descent from the Prophet was high on Abu Salma's mind when he was trying to find someone to replace the Abbasids, who were thought to have been lost to the Umayyads at that point. Nothing came from his efforts, and we are told Abu Muslim later had him killed for his betrayal of the Abbasids. Curiously, this assassination is sometimes cast as an attempt by Abu Muslim to prove that he wasn't in on Abu Salma's plans, and that the Abbasids were dejected for such an honorable Arab to have been killed by the brazen initiative of the presumptuous governor of Khurasan. I suppose we've now introduced enough about the clan to proceed with our narrative. Al-Mansur wasn't particularly concerned about Ja'far al-Sadiq, who despite his unprecedented standing within the Ummah as a religious authority, had proven to be thoroughly apolitical. It was the more numerous Hassani branch of the clan that worried him, especially the sons of Abdullah al-Kamil. One of them was so widely admired for his piety and noble demeanor that he was known as Muhammad Nafsus Zakiya, Muhammad the pure soul. The Hashemites were so besotted with him that when things looked bad for the Umayyads after Hisham's death in 743, we're told the clan met in secret and collectively offered their pledges to him as their rightful caliph. Al-Mansur knew this because he'd been there, he and Al-Saffah both. Like everyone else in attendance, they had sworn their fealty to Muhammad the pure soul. You heard that right. According to some well-attested oral testimony, 
the Abbasid caliphs had already pledged their allegiance to their pious cousin from the Hassani branch of the clan. Back then, the da'wah was still a secret project, and none of the other Hashemites knew who was behind it. Like everyone else, they assumed that it was calling for one of the Prophet's descendants to accede to the throne, which is why they were all secretly formalizing their support for Muhammad the pure soul. When the Abbasids triumphed in Kufa, Muhammad and a brother of his, Ibrahim, both took flight from Medina, certain in the knowledge that they would forever after be seen as a threat. I'm not sure how accurate the story of their journey is, but they are said to have first gone to Yemen, then India, then finally back to Medina. I think it's far more likely that they went into hiding in the vast Arabian desert and rumors about distant travels swirled in their absence. I mean, why would they go so far just to later go back and hide close to Medina? That just doesn't make any sense. In any case, fast forward to 754, when al-Mansur led the Hajj during his brother's reign, or co-led it with Abu Muslim, I guess. You know, just before he became caliph. While there, he was angered by the notable absence of many of his clansmen, especially the sons of Abdullah, Ibrahim, and Muhammad the Pure Soul. He asked after them, then appointed men who promised him that they would find and arrest them for not having submitted their pledges. This becomes a running theme over the next few years, and we find quite a few stories in our sources with the caliph ordering officials to rid him of this source of constant anxiety, though none of these men ever succeeded. He changed the governor of Medina a few times as his picks consistently failed to deliver, and in late 761, al-Mansur finally lost patience. He chose a man named Riyah al-Murri as his latest governor, and complained to him about how ineffective his predecessors had been at achieving the one thing he was after. Riyah got the message loud and clear, and when he arrived in Medina in December, he quickly arrested the previous governor and his staff, torturing them to exact punishment and extract treasure. He also imprisoned a slew of Hassanis, Abdullah al-Kamil, all his brothers, and some of their children. Then he did everything he could to get them to snitch on the location of the only two Hashemites the caliph cared about, Muhammad the pure soul and his brother Ibrahim. The Hassanis remained in Riyah's custody for a few months. The Hassanis remained in Riyah's custody for a few months, after which they were transferred to Al-Mansur's dungeons in Iraq and tortured with a brutality that even the Umayyads were rarely accused of. We're told Muhammad the pure soul and his brother were racked with guilt over this and conflicted over whether submitting to the caliph would now free their kin from the horrors they had to endure. Within a few months, however, they hatched a plan that would finally see them come out of hiding and take action. They decided on a two-pronged attack. Ibrahim would go to Basra to rally its people in support of a true Hashemite rebellion, while Muhammad would lead the Arabs of Medina in revolt. It's a strange plan both because Basra had never been known as a center of Hashemite support, and Medina didn't really pose a strategic threat to anything. I believe they rushed these decisions and picked locations they could get started with immediately, probably due to the pressure they felt from having their father, brothers, uncles, and cousins trapped in Al-Mansur's dungeons. We're told that the plan was for them to rebel at the same time, but that the caliph made it difficult for them to liaise. Not content with simply intercepting mail from and to Medina, Al-Mansur ordered forged letters exaggerating Hashemite support in Iraq to be sent there as well, 
to encourage vacillating would-be usurpers from his clan to step out of line. Both counts of communication interference may have paid off. In one telling of these events, Muhammad the pure soul was indeed convinced to move earlier than planned, and a coded letter to Basra instructing his brother to do the same never made it to Ibrahim. So in September 762, Muhammad the pure soul led a rebellion in Medina. Its religiously inclined population all joined him enthusiastically, and he won the city in a bloodless coup. Or almost bloodless, one of his earliest orders was the execution of the hated governor, Riyah, who had imprisoned his kin. Some narrations count his supporters at this point as high as 100,000, and they name many of the most prominent religious scholars of the age among them, such as Abu Hanif al-Nu'man and Malik ibn Anas, students of Jafar's and founders of two of the four schools of Sunni jurisprudence. We're told the caliph was far from upset at these developments. Instead, he was relieved to have finally enticed his elusive cousin to come out in the open. We hear of a string of letters between the two, the caliph offering amnesty in exchange for Muhammad's pledge, and the pure soul making the case for his own legitimacy. These letters don't go anywhere, but in them we find some of the best articulations of this intra-Hashemite struggle. Despite the strong start in Medina, nothing else went right for Muhammad's rebellion. Instead of receiving support from a parallel movement led by his brother in Basra, Medina was quickly surrounded by the caliph's armies and cut off from the rest of the caliphate. Al-Mansur sent his cousin and heir apparent, Isa bin Musa, to lead the military response. Muhammad, the pure soul, urged his supporters to dig a trench around the city, a tactic used by the Prophet when he defended his ummah against the much larger Qurayshi alliance back in the day. But Isa didn't need to attack to crush this movement. He simply embargoed the city, withholding its crucial grain imports from Egypt, then wrote to its elders promising them amnesty if they abandoned their cause. It took less than a month, the month of Ramadan incidentally, to whittle Muhammad's support down from tens of thousands to mere hundreds. In early December, about halfway into the holy month, after Muhammad had only about 300 supporters left, the Abbasid army of 4,000 attacked and massacred the rebels in Medina. Ibrahim had begun secretly collecting pledges for his brother the pure soul as soon as the two had hatched their plans. As usual, there's plenty of disagreement in our sources, and some accounts claim Ibrahim went far and wide in search of support, passing by every Iraqi city except Kufa, where the Abbasids were based, before he settled in his original destination of Basra. I don't buy these narrations, he didn't really have the time for a tour like that, and I think they're just trying to preempt the question of his instant success in Basra. Its population was surprisingly receptive, and the ranks of his supporters swelled larger every day. It was at the holiday celebrating the end of Ramadan, Eid al-Fitr, that he suddenly learned of all that had gone down in Medina, and his brothers martyred him against Isa ibn Musa's forces about ten days earlier. He gave a fiery speech at the mosque in which he declared open war. Here too he met with unexpected success, winning a string of unlikely victories against the caliphate. His first army out of Basra managed to take the fortified canton of Wasit, halfway between the city and Kufa. And the men he sent east to southern Iran and Fadis swiftly unseated al-Mansur's agents. Even Khazim ibn Khuzayma failed to blunt their assault when he led 4,000 men against these rebels, 
a first for the undefeated commander. Ibrahim's rapid success attracted pro-Hashemite defectors from everywhere, even Kufa, which until then had been a Abbasid capital of sorts. Ironically, this new influx of supporters is what brought down the nascent rebellion. These new allies were eager for Ibrahim to lead all his forces to Kufa for a showdown against the Abbasids. The Basrins were of the exact opposite opinion. They felt they had overextended themselves, and now was the time to negotiate with al-Mansur. Honestly, we're not even sure that disagreement between the Kufans and Basrins was what splintered Ibrahim's coalition. There's all sorts of material in our sources, but I had to pick something. Examples of other explanations include a propaganda war by al-Mansur which convinced Ibrahim's supporters that they were outnumbered, leading many to abandon him. Then there's the usual threats and promises approach. Always a favorite, but it also explains why these rebels would think that al-Mansur would treat with them. What's clear is that the bigger the crowd grew, the less cohesive it became. It seems like Ibrahim's movement was filled not so much by avid believers in the Hashemite cause, but by different groups of dissidents, each with its own grudge against the new Abbasid regime. While Ibrahim's supporters were paralyzed with argument and indecision, the caliph mobilized more forces to the region to properly address the ballooning threat. I wish we had reliable estimates for each side, but the conflicting accounts, so common during periods of civil strife, make it very difficult to be sure. The highest number I came across for Ibrahim's forces is a dubious 100,000, which will be nowhere to be found when push comes to shove. The unrealistically high number does, however, work with some other stories we find about men streaming into Basra from across Iraq to join Ibrahim's movement, and how a panicked caliph was giving orders to kill anyone suspected of heading there. Forget factual accuracy. The point of these narrations, just like the earlier ones about Ibrahim going around Iraq before settling in Basra, is to convey that despite its infancy, this rebellion posed a real threat to the caliphate. So since 100,000 is too much, let's try a different estimation method. Al-Mansur had assigned Isa ibn Musa as commander once again, and had given him 15 to 20,000 troops to lead the battle. Since the caliph was a reasonable man, we should assume that Ibrahim's overall forces were around the same size, perhaps a little bit smaller. Ibrahim eventually did decide to march on Kufa, and probably less than 15,000 men joined him. He met Isa's forces about a hundred kilometers from the city, and while all accounts admit that Ibrahim won that battle, they disagree on how he was killed shortly after. Some say that a stray arrow hit him in the head as his opponents were withdrawing, others that a quick second assault by the Abbasids surprised and bested his men. He died in February of 763, just two months after his brother. As a final cruelty, the caliph put Ibrahim's captive family, his own kin, to death in March of that year. He picked Eid al-Adha, the day of sacrifice, a day holy to Muslims, as their execution date, a profanity curiously repeated with Saddam Hussein in 2006. With Ibrahim's death came the end of the real Hashemite clan's struggle against al-Mansur, and no other rebellions would threaten the caliph for the rest of his long reign. Don't worry, though, there will be plenty else to keep him busy, and we still have a few episodes on the man ahead of us. 
but the end of the pure soul and his brother still left one other prominent Hashemite standing, Ja'far Sadiq. Although this leader of the Husseini branch was famously apolitical, the caliph had attempted to get him to endorse the Abbasids earlier in his reign, but Ja'far had demurred and stayed out of it. Al-Mansur had once even summoned him to Iraq, but Ja'far resisted by citing copious amounts of religious material until the caliph relented. The fact that Ja'far could rebuff the caliph speaks to the power he must have held at the time. It wasn't military power or anything, but he had a huge following, numbering in the thousands. While his charisma and personal abilities were of course a huge part of that, it is helpful to keep in mind that he lived without the limitations imposed on his predecessors. No way would any Hashemite have been able to gain this much sway in the Umayyad Caliphate. But ever since the chaos of the Third Fitna, official authority seemed too remote to matter. Then the Abbasid Revolution came along and swept all that away, and the new caliphs had to play nice with their kin since they were leaning on the Hashemite claim to the Prophet's legacy as part of the justification for their movement. That all changed in 763, of course, and the events we discuss today did leave an impression on Ja'far. He did make that trip to Iraq to personally pledge the caliph and assure him of his loyalty shortly afterwards. While we are told that al-Mansur preferred to keep him close, even offering him a position in his court, Ja'far managed to convince everyone that his place was in Medina, to where he was allowed to return within the year. Once there, he resumed his role as a religious educator and legal genius. His prominence never ebbed, and when he eventually died a few years later in 765, we find the usual rumors of his having been assassinated by the caliph, the same ones we heard about literally all of his predecessors. While I don't buy into them, they are another nod to how Ja'far's very existence was a threat to the caliph's legitimacy. After all, he was the most respected, most religious elder of his clan, and of paramount importance, he was directly descended from the Prophet himself. So to a tribally-minded society like the Ummah, it made perfect sense that he was the one who should have been in charge. While Jafar al-Sadiq was never a political or military threat to the Caliph, some saw him as a new pole of authority within the Ummah. His standing as the eminent religious elder of his time, coupled with his venerated ancestry, left him in the unique position of wielding a sort of inherent legitimacy. Does that make sense? Maybe it will if I explain his ideology more fully. This really isn't the podcast to get into this, but this part is necessary to understand some of the very consequential social developments to come. The way Jafar saw it, Legitimacy was a sort of holy, inherent attribute, and the existence of the caliphate just an incidental earthly matter of no real bearing on true legitimacy. The prophet had been the legitimate spiritual leader of the ummah, and he had passed that position on to his cousin Ali bin Abi Talib publicly during his farewell speech. Ali had passed it on to his son Al-Hasan, who then passed it on to his brother Al-Husayn. Thus it was passed down his line, through Ali Zainul Abidin, to Muhammad al-Baqir, and finally to him, Ja'far al-Sadiq. Calling it legitimacy is cutting it short, actually, because it came with a kind of religious knowledge and responsibility that went beyond what God normally revealed to mankind. 
This was why it only passed through incredibly gifted and pious men from the blessed line of the prophet, a line that went back through Jesus and Moses to Abraham. It was one of God's gifts of guidance to humanity. After all, it wouldn't be fair for some ages to have a prophet to show people the way and later generations be deprived. And so the Arabs and their caliphs could do what they liked, but God's unerring will had conferred upon Jafar al-Sadiq a crown which could never be removed. He was the imam of his time. These ideas, along with almost everything else he produced, form the basis of Shia ideology. All the predecessors of his I named are among the imams recognized by the various Shia sects in existence today. We find dissension right after Jafar, though. I guess one of the drawbacks of having a large following is that it almost always splinters when it comes to succession. But those conflicts will only prove important further down the line, so we can leave them be for now. While Shiism is popularly considered the championing of the sons of Ali bin Abi Talib, it would be more accurate to call it adherence to the thought of Jafar al-Sadiq. After all, we find two of the four founders of Sunni schools of thought, Abu Hanif al-Nu'man and Malik ibn Anas, supporting Muhammad the pure soul during his rebellion. So it wasn't trying to get the Prophet's descendants to rule the caliphate that was Shia. It was believing that the imams were the true leaders to look towards, no matter what position they held within the caliphate. This framework thus finds a new path to power by subsuming the political within the religious, a priestly revenge on an impenitent ummah. Before I end for the day, I just want to remind listeners that the controversial nature of the stuff we talked about makes it difficult to be sure of the history. The Hashemite struggle has always been one of the issues which generate the most commentary in our sources. Despite how eventful al-Mansur's reign was otherwise, this affair with the Hassani brothers represents a good chunk of the material we find during his reign. I am also quite unqualified to be describing Jafar's ideology to anyone. Religious matters like these can be sensitive, so I mostly relied on quotes and books I found on the subject. I would have avoided delving into it altogether if I could, but the man is to Islamic legal theory what Newton is to science, so there was really no way around it. We're not even done with him yet, he's that important to Arab history. But we're done for today. Join me next time for more on Al-Mansur, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.